Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. I'm your host, Ajua Robinson, and I'd like to take a moment to address you, our regular listeners. We know you have enjoyed our podcasts, as evidenced by the more than 200,000 downloads to date. Thanks to you all. We'd like to know what value you may have found in the podcast. We'd like to hear from all of you, practitioners, researchers, students, but especially our listeners who are social work educators. How are you using the podcast in your classrooms? Just go to our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu forward slash podcast and click on the Contact Us tab. Again, thanks for listening and we look forward to hearing from you. Welcome from the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Did you know that winter has been canceled here in Western New York? I'm looking out my sixth floor window here at the university. It's late February and there is not one flake of snow on the ground. Another illusion shattered. Hi, I'm Peter Sabota. In this episode of our podcast series, Dr. Shelley Craig and Brad Engel discuss the training and research study they conducted attempting to implement motivational interviewing and develop skill acquisition among staff members at an agency serving sexual minority youth. In a very practical way, Dr. Engel and Craig describe what they did in their project and why they chose the motivational interviewing approach for this vulnerable and at-risk population. Drs. Craig and Engel describe how they adapted motivational interviewing skills to a strength-based case management approach that was already in place at a particular agency. Based on their training and research study, Drs. Engel and Craig give voice to the unique needs of this population and how effective the application of this new approach was in assisting with those needs. In the latter part of our interview, Drs. Craig and Engel discuss the broader applications related to training and learning motivational interviewing based on their research. They conclude with the next steps and their wish list for further research with this population and with motivational interviewing applications. Dr. Brett Engel, PhD, is Assistant Professor at Barry University School of Social Work in Florida. His research interests include adolescent healthers' behaviors, the group modality, process research utilizing discourse analysis, and motivational interviewing and social learning theory-based constructs of commitment language and other change talk. He is a member of the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers and is actively involved with the Association for the Advancement of Social Work with Groups. Dr. Shelley Craig, Ph.D., is an assistant professor on the Faculty of Social Work at the University of Toronto, Canada. Dr. Craig's research focuses on the social determinants of health and mental health and the impact of the service delivery system on vulnerable populations. Her most recent work includes studying the efficacy of a health promotion program for minority youth involved with the criminal justice system, the HIV testing patterns of older Latinas, HIV prevention for Latina transgender sex workers, and the use of mental health services by urban, gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender youth. 
Both Dr. Craig and Dr. Engel bring extensive direct practice experience to add to their scholarly work. I'm Peter Sabota, Clinical Assistant Professor at the UB School of Social Work, and I interviewed Drs. Craig and Engel by telephone. A quick heads up before you listen to today's podcast. All of us referred to motivational interviewing in the shorthand of MI many times throughout the discussion. With me today are Dr. Brett Engel and Dr. Shelley Craig, and they're here to discuss their research related to implementing an MI approach and building MI skills in practitioners in an agency setting, specifically an agency that serves sexual minority youth. Thanks for joining us, Brett and Shelley. Thank you. Glad to be here. Before I ask you to describe the specifics of your work, I'm always interested in how two academics from different universities join forces. How did this happen? Brett and I actually went to school together in Miami and worked together for several years. So we're joining forces essentially by virtue of our the similarity of some of the work that we've done and I think sort of a similar approach to work. So even though I am in Toronto now, I'm still doing a significant amount of work in the South Florida area. So that's essentially how it, we can't shake each other. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, it's, it's kind of interesting because while we were at Florida International University together in the PhD program in social welfare, when we, that's the program we were in together. But during that whole time, our research interests really did not really come together. Shelley has always had a you know, more of a macro focus, and of course she'll tell us more about it, but uh, and her, and working specifically with the sexual minority youth population. And I have been much more coming from the clinical side and interested in health risk behaviors and uh, also working with youth. So although we've known each other for a long time, our research, it took us quite some time before we actually collaborated on a project. Actually, you've kind of already addressed part of the next thing I was going to ask you. I was going to say, I've looked at the title of the podcast and the work that you've done, and I was going to ask you, why am I and why sexual minority youth? So why I've had an interest in motivational interviewing going back to, oh, about 2003, around the time that we both entered the PhD program. So I've had kind of that focus, but it did take these many years, I guess, for us to see the application of MI with sexual minority youth and to see how it would be a natural fit. I'm sure we'll get into more of the details, but I think I've seen it for a while in terms of this being something that would work with sexual minority youth because it is a very strength-based approach that doesn't that really emphasizes being non-judgmental and and is very much person-centered. So I'm a big fan of MI for lots of populations, but with a population that has been as stigmatized as sexual minorities are, I think MI is particularly useful. Shelley, would you like to speak to this? Sure. And I think it does represent, I think MI with sexual minority youth in the ways that Brett described does make sense. I know I my direct practice experience has been around developing agencies and programs specifically for this population. And it's still really, I think, an emerging area of both practice and research. And so when Brett and I were considering working together on this and whether or not it would make sense to, to fuse MI with an intervention that I developed 
that is essentially a strengths-based case management for sexual minority youth. It really made sense because of the vulnerabilities of this population, and the intervention is essentially already strengths-based, but for some of the youth that are significantly more isolated, the way that MI, I think, helps develop trust and safety, as well as move the adolescents to the next stage of development or meeting their identified goals, MI was really a way, I think, to really help the care coordinators or the case managers with particular clients that often were a little stuck, which made sense by virtue of the significant risk factors that they were facing, both from family, school, and in a variety of settings as well. So it really made sense that this would be a great addition to an existing program. Yeah, it does fit really well. It sounds like both of you have significant practice experience. And you kind of brought that together to inform your research. It's nice work there. Okay, thanks for the background. And I wonder now if we could get into it. Would you be willing now to start describing your work and tell us what you did? Yes, of course. So the way we started was to go into the this agency and train the care coordinators in motivational interviewing. So that was one of our tasks, was really just to get them up to competency. And we have some really nice measures to do that, to be able to measure competency in MI. Primarily, the MIDI or the MITI, the Motivational Interviewing Treatment Integrity Coding System. So what this coding system does is allows us to measure an individual, an interviewer's MI skills by recording or you can do it live, but it's nice to have a recording of the interviewer doing a, and sometimes it's recommended to have up to like 20 minutes, but we've often done less than that, where we can actually code essentially everything that the interviewer says. So there's, there are two parts to the mighty. We have some global ratings of, of empathy and other MI spirit, we call them concepts. And then there are these behavior count ratings, but we actually code every specific utterance that the interviewer makes. So it roughly maps on to what a lot of folks may have heard of if they're familiar with MI, the ORs, the open questions, affirmations, reflections, and summaries. Not exactly the same, but it roughly maps on that. So using the MIDI was our big quantitative measure in terms of being able to do some pre- and post-test measuring of, in this case, the care coordinator's MI skills. It wasn't the most rigorously designed study because it was, again, part of the intention of what we were doing was not just to do research, but we wanted the care coordinators to have these skills. And so I've done several of these training research projects, and they always kind of have this dual purpose where one thing is we really want the folks to have the skills. It's not just a research project. So one element of this study was to give them a pretest. We had them do an interview very early on, and then we measured their skills actually several times throughout the study. But toward the end, we did it again, and then we just did a simple pre-post-test comparison on their skills. Shelley, do you want to chime in here? Sure. I would, of course, agree with Brett. I think the the dual purpose 
is really important, particularly when you're talking about community-based agencies that don't have a lot of resources. So this is something that was offered just in kind, essentially. And when you're talking about specifically vulnerable populations, so it's really practice-based research, I think, sort of participatory action framework. But I think that that sort of larger approach that we had was something that was really important. And the staff, the case managers, were the ones that were the targets of this intervention, certainly, to develop their skills. And one of the things that I think is really interesting, and I know Brett started to, was really talking about this, the components of MI really do map on nicely to strengths-based case management, which I talked about. But we've also just done essentially a qualitative, just a qualitative, in the same practice-based research framework study in which we determined what of the youth who had been through this sort of uh, we have to think of a good term for it, I guess, but with the strengths-based case management plus MI, we were trying to identify which of the components were most beneficial to them and what was really important to them. And I think it just maps on really nicely to the MI approach because one of the things that the youth who have been through the essentially graduates of the program, They one of the things that they found that was really important was this idea of sort of teaching how or advice giving. That part of the intervention was something that was really important. And that is, I think, in the way that I understand MI, of course, Brett can correct me, is an important component. So strength-based case management in particular is a little bit more wide open the individual determines what it is that they want to do, and there isn't a lot of sort of directives, hard or soft, given to the participant. But for these youth, who I think are particularly vulnerable, they really like the fact that they were guided. It was certainly the goals were what they determined were important in partnership with the case manager, but they really like that there's the teaching how or advice giving, which I think is really something that MI provides in, I think, a really important way. So that was something I think that was really important. And also the fact that they were able to gain confidence because of the trusting relationship with their case manager. And this, too, I think is really part of MI in terms of the relationship building. And Brett addressed issues of empathy and really understanding where the young person is sort of situated in terms of their personal context. So I think that that really, I mean, it's essentially just qualitative data at this point, and it doesn't really look specifically at some of the identified outcomes, but it does look at the relationship, and I think the use of MI skills really was something that that really, like I said, mapped really nicely onto what was important for the adolescents that had graduated. Yes. And the three different things you just discussed, those areas or qualities of their relationship with their coordinator, those were identified by the clients themselves. By the clients themselves, yeah. Yeah, so there are several levels to this research that we've done then. One is this very quantitative pre-post skill measure, in my skill measurement of the care coordinators. Another one is what Shelley was just talking about, this qualitative piece in which the clients themselves, the youth, describe how useful the services were to them and how and in what ways. 
And then still another level was the care coordinator's application of, so they started using these skills and then their kind of feedback to us about how these skills were useful to them and how they were utilizing them. And that's another kind of qualitative piece that was really, that I think is one of the more, well, for me, was one of the most interesting parts of the whole project. Can you talk a little bit about what the, what the care coordinators said, about what they valued about the intervention? One of the things they were able to do was to have conversations, and this actually shaped the training too, because so the training went on, it was over about six months. So as they were giving me feedback, I was able to kind of tailor the training to what it was that they were experiencing. And one of the things that they were experiencing was something that Shelley was touching on, which is that this service and this agency is not set up to, you know, this isn't substance abuse treatment. We're not there to address one specific issue. It's very open and it's really up to the clients to decide for themselves what they need and we're there to help them with that. So in that way, it requires some additional skill on the part of the care coordinator to be able to figure out which behaviors or which, and in my terms, we talk about targeted behaviors, which targeted behavior do we want to focus in on? And, and it's very important from a, you know, to be truly strength-based, to not be overly directive in that and to really bring it out of them. So the kind of the trick was, how do we help the clients with what they want to be helped with and at the same time address what we know to be some very serious health risk behaviors when those are there. And so that was a really big trick, right? Yes. So that was one of the very interesting elements in terms of the qualitative piece is that they, the care coordinators would come back and they would say, well, gosh, I really want to ask them about going, you know, this one particular client, I want to ask them about going to see a gynecologist because she's 16 years old and has never been to a gynecologist before. So we started to utilize the MI skills to have these difficult conversations with the clients. Mm -hmm. And that's always the tension with people who are learning MI, isn't it? At least in my experience is that usually the services are delivered by people who are knowledgeable and have experience and and really have a lot of good things to offer, but to practice MI in the spirit that it's intended, you really got to keep your mouth shut while you elicit and evoke from people what is important to them. Absolutely. They like to refer to the, the, the writing reflex. We want to tell them what to do. And so a big part of MI, I mean, I always think of it in terms of it's as much about what you don't do as what you do do. So it's important, you know, there are a lot of those kinds of, all of those lessons were definitely pertained to what we were doing here and even more because we're also, we do talk about a menu of options in MI. And I think, so one thing to keep in mind is that MI has to be adapted to whatever setting you're in. So it may be a setting in which you really are going to talk about alcohol use. And that's really what it's about. And that's okay. You can do that. And you're just upfront about that from the beginning. Or it may be a setting much more like this one in which it's wide open. And uh, we just kind of have to be much more fluid and then looking for those target behaviors. And once we see it, though, it's very important that we address it. One that would come up, for example, is unprotected sex. If we hear a youth talking about engaging in risky sexual behaviors, we do have an obligation to address that with them. And I think MI allows us to do it in the most respectful way possible. It's curious to me because it sounds like the agency that you implemented this in was already fairly client-centered to begin with. Do I have that right? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, because I was wondering, not having a lot of experience with this myself, 
In your experience, what are the so-called typical or even maybe even preferred approaches that are utilized in agencies serving this population? Is it directive? Is it heavy-handed? Or is it more like the agency that you implemented this in where it's pretty client-centered to begin with? It's really interesting, actually, because there aren't any evidence-based or evidence-informed programs for this population. So what that means is that there are actually very few independent agencies that serve this population. In many cases, there are programs that are part of the sort of larger array of programs that are offered to various populations within, particularly within urban areas. But so it's an interesting the way that services are delivered is fairly interesting. And in addition, one of the challenges is that sexual minority youth in most states, it's very much state-driven, are not considered a vulnerable population just for those reasons because sexual orientation and gender identity are not identified as identifiable demographic areas. So that it's a really interesting sort of cobbling approaches together is fairly interesting. So that said, I would say that the agencies that are, I would say, independent and suited and really set up to serve the needs of this population, again, mostly found in urban areas and mostly not receiving much government funding, are tend to be fairly client-centered. And I think part of that is because the... The history of these organizations is that often they're started by activists. And so in that way, the sort of that spirit carries through into the service delivery. When the programs are offered in as sort of an adjunct or in addition to other programs that a larger organization is offering, then they tend to be more directive and they tend to be focused more on almost like life skills approaches which is important, but I'm not entirely sure is the core of what these adolescents always need. So it's an interesting, so this is essentially an attempt to provide some, I think, additional tools to clinicians who already have to be fairly flexible and nimble because the clients are all voluntary, which is really interesting, and there's very little attrition in the program as well, which again, I think speaks to the sort of exceptional level of service delivery that these clinicians provide. But they also seem to be, to sort of echo Brett, they seem to be grateful to have another set of skills that they were able to use with clients when they needed to do so. So it's a very, and number of things that the youth identify that they need services is a significant range. So many of them have been suicidal. I would say over half have been homeless. And you do have some who are looking specifically for help getting into college, so they're not as high risk. But a large majority of the population, I would say sort of the standard risk profile is fairly high with sort of family rejection, lots of unsafe sexual behaviors, lots of um, unfortunately of cutting some of those other issues as well. So as Brett said, it becomes really important for the clinicians to be able to have both impressive levels of abilities to assess what's the most important and help work with the youth to identify what's the most important as well as really then provide the level of intervention because you have the same individual doing the assessment, which I think is really important, 
and delivering the entire intervention, which again, isn't always the case in some of the larger agencies, but I think is critical because of the lack of safety and the lack of trust that these adolescents typically have in service providers. So, Yeah. And again, from an outsider's view, it seems to me that, for example, with the population you're describing, that incorporating an MI approach would be almost a no-brainer because of its collaborative and client-centered, evocative core values to begin with. So thank you for clarifying because I almost got the sense that you were attempting systemic and cultural change in an agency, but because of the agency and the population that you chose, it sounds like you were more building rather than trying to kind of promote systemic change. Yes, it was an easier sell in that way, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure people who are listening to this are not, I think, always going to have the luxury of, I think, the, the, the setting you chose to employ this at. And I think a lot of social workers or practitioners of all kinds are really trying to kind of bring an MI approach and implement it and build skills and practitioners in settings that are way too directive. And I'm wondering, are there things that you learned that would give people insight into trying to implement what you're doing in agencies that might not be as receptive? Yeah, that's very interesting because that's something I come across a lot. I come into it, and so this agency being very progressive, and uh, we might think of it as, as kind of a constructivist type perspective that they have where... So approaches like narrative or solution-focused or some of these others would fit very, very nicely at the Alliance as well. But then MI is a little bit more, and I kind of think of it as being in the positivist tradition in that, just in that it is directive with regard to when we identify a health risk behavior, we go after it. Whereas these more purely constructivist approaches are, in a sense, more truly even more truly person-centered, perhaps, in that we're going where the person wants to go, and I'm not going to try to take them in any particular direction. And so, in my mind, MI is actually, again, more in that positivist tradition in that at some point in time, I, as the interviewer, very well may identify something that's a concern to me and I think is just a very, you know, again, I think of, in terms of health risk behavior, so I need to address it with them, whereas the other approaches may not go there. So agencies have a similar kind of orientation, and probably more often than not, they're coming from, well, it's, it's very hard to say that, but very often agencies... <laughs> do come from the perspective of kind of You like, can say it, Brad. It's okay. I can say it. I can say it. Okay. <laughs> well, I know a lot of very progressive agencies as well, but a lot of agencies do come from this perspective of like, uh, no, we're here to stop this problem. And so they're very directive in that regard. And so we will kind of come in with more of this constructivist perspective saying, well, you know, we really need to meet the clients where they're at. And if they don't want to change, then it's not going to happen. So oftentimes I'm coming from that perspective. But at the Alliance, I was actually coming from more of the other perspective saying, well, you know, when we see health risk behaviors, we got to, we, we, we need to address them. So that it's a very interesting dynamic coming into the culture of an agency. You really haven't addressed this, but as I listen to you describe what you've done, you've really, I think, tapped into this whole kind of notion and ongoing development of how to think about this, about how to train people to deliver MI. And I think in my limited experience, for example, 
a lot of people will go to, uh, practitioners will go to a one or two day workshop and they'll get MI 101 and then that's pretty much the end of it. It sounds like what you've done here in your intervention and your research is that you have moved in the direction that, at least in my understanding, Miller and Rolnick are moving into and kind of emphasizing the need for ongoing skill development over time with supervision and review. Does that make any sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's pretty well established within the network of trainers, for example, the Mint, that people in in training research that's been done, that it really does require ongoing practice and feedback to develop these skills and to utilize MI with fidelity. And unfortunately, very often, and in fact, and more often than not, people's exposure to MI is much more in the workshop kind of format. There are very practical reasons for that. I mean, it, it takes considerably more resources or commitment to learning the approach if you, if you have to put in on, an ongoing effort. But having said that, it actually doesn't, I address this a lot in trainings because people think that, I think they overestimate what it's going to take to utilize and to learn this approach. We've actually implemented it at the FIU College of Medicine the last several years. So first year medical students, we're, we're teaching it to them. It's always a big concern. How Well, we don't have time. But for the learner, it actually doesn't take that much time. What they need to be able to do is to practice it. So if you're working with clients and you want to learn this skill, you can just do what you're doing. But if you can ideally record a session or over time several sessions with a client and then give it to a trainer who can then give you feedback, it doesn't take a lot of time. But it is something that you need to do over time to allow for the person then to come back and then try it again and then get a little more feedback and, and that sort of thing. And that was something that was to our advantage at the Alliance because we did do it over, you know, this first time around, we did it over like six months, which was a pretty good length. Of what do you think are the practical implications of the work you've done and that you're doing for social work practice, for social work education, or even more research? So I guess what I'm wondering is how do you take the things that you learned by doing this and make broader applications for social work practice in, in general? Well, I think that there are a few applications. One of the, I think, just fairly easy takeaway messages is that I believe that MI can certainly work with other types of interventions, which I know is what some of the other research says, to enhance perhaps the uptake of both interventions and to really, and it can really map on to the needs of particularly vulnerable populations where there perhaps aren't as many interventions or there isn't as much research that has been conducted. So that, I think, is really helpful in terms of thinking about the fact that it could, that absolutely this MI framework can be something that is can lead to additional sort of culturally competent practice with sexual minority youth. So I think that is one. It's my understanding, and Brett would be able to correct me, of course, as usual, but that perhaps MI has not been used as much with populations that are the most extreme or the ones who are perhaps voluntary or in many cases completely outside the safety net of services that adolescents are often in. And so I think that that 
for me, is really helpful. And I think in terms of social work education, it could be really helpful. And I know that we're all sort of doing this, but I'm certainly in my classes now building in MI, even though it's just a one or two day training, but building in MI to help increase the student competence with regard to the utilization of this framework and really helping them realize how important the relationship and the relationship building is in addition to the strengths-based approach, which in some cases is not is counter to some of the other things that we tend to teach in social work education. So I think it's very progressive. And with regard to research, I think one of our next steps, and I know we've discussed this, is really then we've identified the components of the relationship that are developed through MI that are very important to the sexual minority youth actually sort of staying in and engaging fully in case management. And the next step will then also be looking at some of those health outcomes and case plan goals and determining how MI has then impacted their completion of their care plan and the fact that they've met their goals and decreased the negative health risk behaviors as well as increasing positive behaviors. So those are some ways that we've sort of been thinking about it, but I know there's probably quite a few more. What do you think, Brett? I think that's very well said. And you talk about the relationship component of that the care coordinators and the clients as well identified as being useful. I think that very much maps onto the whole approach. I mean, it's there. there is this relational component to MI. Uh, and then another part of it, which is the more directive piece, looking at health outcomes. So I yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. And in terms of contributing to research or for for further research, one area in the MI literature that I think is somewhat underdeveloped is is a bit of creativity in identifying target behaviors or health risk behaviors. I think it's just something that is usually kind of set up for us or research project they kind of go in with the target behavior already identified or at least a range of target behaviors of related ones. Because I've never heard of using MI to encourage a youth to go to the gynecologist, for you know, the example that I mentioned earlier, or to talk to a youth about them chatting online with, say you have a 13 or 14 year old adolescent who is chatting online with a 30-year-old male. And like some of the risks associated with that, for most of us adults, we kind of like alarm bells kind of go off for that. But for sexual minority youth, they may have pretty compelling reasons for engaging in something like that. And so from my perspective, this is a risky behavior. And I would want to be able to have a conversation and, and try to guide the adolescent and encourage them essentially to I would try to have the conversation where they start to recognize whatever the risks may be of doing that. Can I say one more thing? Sure. <laughs> I also think, Brett, it's very interesting. Of course, everything you say is very interesting. But it's very interesting because I really think the idea of, and you discussed how MI is typically used to address risk behaviors, which is something uh -huh. obviously that's critical for many populations, but within the larger sort of world of sexual minority youth research and practice, there is sort of an ongoing discussion about not pathologizing these youth yes. and just thinking yes. about the risk behaviors. And so there's been a big push for resiliency-based research too. 
And I'm sort of in the middle with regard to that because the fact is, certainly with regard to the youth that we are working with, which are the majority Latino Haitian youth in particular, there are a lot of significant risk behaviors that we can't pretend don't exist. So MI is great for that. But it is really interesting to think about the way that perhaps MI could impact positive behaviors in addition some of these behaviors like self-efficacy and some of these making healthy choices. I think it would be interesting to look at both of those in the same study and with the same adolescents to see how MI then can impact both sort of negative and positive behaviors. Because I think that also then maps onto the sort of larger issue of certainly we don't want to stigmatize an already stigmatized population, but we want to provide interventions that are, in many cases, strengths-based and a balance of, which is actually very challenging, but a balance of addressing these both negative risk behaviors as well as enhancing the strengths that these youth already have. I mean, they're still alive, so they're very strong. So it's a really interesting. I, I think that that would be super interesting. Yeah, I mean, and it's nice to, whenever possible, address positive behaviors, you know, and you mentioned before, like going to college, you know, so, and we certainly can use MI skills to encourage positive behaviors, I guess. And it's really hard in describing it, at least I don't, I don't think convey or give justice to what the approach actually looks like in practice. Because even though we're kind of revealing what the social worker or the interviewer's kind of their ulterior motive here, which is to work on to decrease this risk behavior. They're doing it in the most respectful, positive way, strength-based way possible. So anytime an adolescent mentions something about, well, you know what I really want to do is go to college and study to become an engineer or, you know, whatever they want to do. We're always taking that information so that strengths that the client expresses is something that we're constantly, we're very closely attending to and reinforcing. And so when you hear it or watch a motivational interview, that's what you see. And so it it looks, and in fact is, very strengths-based it's just that there is part of the underlying purpose is to guide the person and away from something that is actually at odds with, we call it like developing discrepancy with who this person is and who they want to become. Usually these health risk behaviors are, are at odds with that. And so we really want to develop that discrepancy and building on their strengths is a major way in which we do that. That was very well said. My understanding is that what really characterizes the MI approach is this kind of autonomous, the client is a partner, not somebody who is getting directives from an all-knowing, all-wise clinician. And so I'm glad you highlighted that because we have some people probably who might not be that familiar with these kind of core concepts of MI. That makes a lot of sense. I think we're kind of getting near the end here. Are there things that you, either of you would like to add? Well, I would just touch on actually another topic that Shelley touched on, which is about this idea. And I know any of us in social work education is getting familiar now with this competency-based standards from the Council on Social Work Education. And uh, we're having to uh, revamp our curricula to reflect that we are indeed increasing social work students' competencies and various competencies. And I do find, and as we're going through that process ourselves here at at the Barry University School of Social Work, we are 
looking at and beginning to utilize some of the MI measures uh, like the MITEI because it is something that we can have a student do a role play or in some cases even record a session with a client and then we can actually measure whether or not this person is utilizing the skills or not. And uh, that's a pretty big difference from any kind of self-report, oh, I think I'm, yeah, I do this skill really well which we know those measures are problematic, or knowledge, having them take a test and being able to describe the concepts, those are very different measures from actually doing it. And we now have some tools that can validly support that this person is, in fact, utilizing the skills is kind of an exciting thing for social work education. Well, thank you both so much for kind of sharing your ideas and your work with our listeners. I also just wanted to comment on something you said earlier in your discussion, Brett. You described your work as in some ways not so rigorous, but I kind of smiled to myself because as I listened to you, you were your, your work and oh, your work meaning yours and Shelley's are you have research to practice and practice to research all in the same project. And I think that's really where it's at. And if that's not rigorous, that's okay. I, I think <laughs> it's still extraordinarily valuable and, and really kind of the thing that I know we're trying to promote in our podcast series. So I just wanted to say that just as somebody who was listening to both of you talk. Thank you so much. Thank, well, you. thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Maybe we'll just redefine rigorous. Good. I yes. Think. There you go. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Great. Okay. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Dr. Shelley Craig and Brad Engel discuss implementing motivational interviewing skills at an agency serving sexual minority youth on Living Proof. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.